electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, the tech tumble continues as the NASDAQ comes within inches of the June lows. We've got the volatility playbook coming up this hour. Big tech cutting back while Robinhood expands. What that means for stocks, as some say, quote, the party's over. And finally, an inside look at bankrupt crypto lender Celsius as the company tries a new Hail Mary approach to paying back its lenders, Deke. Well, we got to start today's feed with tech investors. Let's call it deja vu this morning. The Nasdaq composite down yet again within just inches of those June lows. Key number to watch here is 10,565. That's just about 300 points away. It's been a similar story. Uh, for all the big tech darlings, take a look at Amazon. It's down 7% this week alone. Google's down 4% with Meta and Microsoft not far behind. Even the broader mar- markets have felt the impact. Goldman cutting its year-end target for the S&P this morning to 3600 and forecasting even more pain ahead amid such a hawkish environment. Here to help us break down the action, senior markets commentator Michael Santoli. Mike. Yeah, uh, D, obviously the, the NASDAQ continues to act as uh, essentially a proxy for the broader market, only more amplified. What we're really seeing here is just higher bond yields globally and a racing uh, dollar, dollar racing skyward being filtered through to all the uh, valuations of the biggest stocks in the market. To me, it's about as simple as that. Yeah, we could talk about earnings risk. It's not really today's business. It's just mostly uh, people pulling back from risk, still feeling like there is too much risk clustered in the upper part of the NASDAQ. But specifically with names, uh, look at Apple continues to act as a totally different species from a lot of the other tech stocks. Apple relative to Microsoft Alphabet. Microsoft and Alphabet have already breached their June lows, uh, as have semiconductors as a as a sector. And Apple still has all of this air under it relative to the June lows. It's about $20 in Apple shares. It's at $150 now, $130 or so is the, uh, the low from June. Uh, if it were to get back to the lows, if Apple were, the S&P then breaks through its low because it's about a 1% drop uh, in the S&P just by a $20 decline in Apple from here. And, of course, the Nasdaq would also be there. So there's two ways to read this. One is stocks that exhibit relative strength that hold up better in a pressured tape uh, tend to you know, earn the benefit of the doubt. There's clearly a reason why they're operating better. The other one is can we have a true kind of give up trade, a capitulation when you still have people able to hide to some degree on a relative basis in Apple. Uh, We'll see how that shakes out. I mentioned semis on a two year basis. uh, It's kind of interesting because you're giving back uh, a huge percentage of that move uh, that kind of started post election. uh, And obviously it started earlier in uh, 2020 as well. Uh, But this is where we sit right now. Uh, hard to say if it's if it's make or break levels. It really just seems to be caught up in the in the global tide uh, of what's going on in a macro sense, guys. Yeah, it's interesting, Mike. You mentioned Apple and how it's outperformed. Amazon also not at its yeah. June lows, and it had been uh, relatively performing poorly 
earlier in the year, along with e-commerce stocks in general, Shopify uh, is, is underperforming. Though. I think it's near the June lows. Any particular patterns that you're seeing there? Is it perhaps the cloud and the enterprise exposure uh, you know, in, in Amazon's business that's bolstering it there it, or no? It's interesting, John. I, I think for one thing, Amazon really didn't participate in the last leg to the upside in, in 2021. So the, the fact that it wasn't coming from such a high purchase probably helping. There's also been this dynamic that it appears going on right now, which is we've seen all of these potential challengers to a lot of the first mover type uh, platform companies. Uh, and they had their fun and we thought they were going to have a shot. We thought it was going to be a more interesting. I see this, you see this in Netflix. Netflix is basing while the other uh, competitors subscale streamers struggle. Amazon, probably something similar here. You might as well go with the incumbent at a time like this when it seems like it's not as if investors are being generous. Even Tesla arguably is in that role uh, where it is actually doing better. It has been holding up somewhat better than, you, than some of the other uh, what you would consider upstart EV makers, even if they're legacy car makers. So there's probably a, a, a some of all of that in that dynamic. Uh, interesting. As always, Mike Santoli, thank you. All right. Now our next guest is taking a closer look at how rising interest rates are causing big tech to tighten the belt. We've recently seen pullbacks at Meta, Google, Snap, others, with one recently departed Meta employee telling our guest that the, quote, party's over, according to Sundar Pichai, though it doesn't mean the work should stop or you can't have a good time. CNBC reporting that the Alphabet CEO told employees in an all-hands meeting this week that you can't always equate fun with money. Joining us now, big technology newsletter author and CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz. Alex, love your thesis here. I disagree with parts of it, though, so, which is going to be fun. Um, so uh, I, I think big tech, you argued that they're vulnerable to outside challenges, refocusing on the core. And, and while they are doing that, they also seem to, to be investing still in key strategic initiatives. It's not like they're taking eye off, their eye off the ball entirely. And at the same time, capital funding is drying up for some upstarts, isn't it? So doesn't that give them an advantage? Yeah, it does. And I think in the short term, you might see advantages that could be a mirage. It's going to look really good for big tech. They're going to be able to cut down on costs and be more profitable in the short term. And the companies that might be nipping at their heels, the Series C and the Series D startups, you know, they're going to be... Uh, drying out of funding and then they're not going to be able to compete as well so it's going to look really good but i do think you can't deny the fact that these companies are pulling back yes they're definitely funding uh, strategic initiatives but those experimental projects that used to come up and would get the money because why not they're not going to be funded anymore and i think that exposes these companies to long-term vulnerability so no matter how the, how much they're funding their strategic uh, initiatives down the line there's going to be some short-term vulnerability no question about it uh, i hear that i also hear at the same time from some CEOs and, and high-level managers, almost a sense of silver lining relief here that the laws of physics, not just in the stock market certainly, but in the labor market uh, are, are returning, right? Management is reasserting itself, saying, no, we can't do everything. As a matter of fact, you can't hire that extra person where, you know, a, a year or so ago, they found it really difficult to make that argument. Well, John, this is where I disagree with you because you can cut employees. The question is, are you cutting the right employees? It's much easier to say we're gonna do a labor reduction and um, end up losing the people who are responsible for the most innovative initiatives inside the company because they'll have a place to go. The people who don't really see a future, they're gonna do whatever they can to hold on to their jobs. 
And so you could end up cutting the people who were driving the initiatives in the company that were actually making a difference and holding on to those loafers. And I think that's the, that's the problem. I think with Meta, you see a real issue here, right, where they're taking people in projects that were not really panning out and saying you have 30 days to find a new job or you're gone. Well, the people working on projects that might not pan out, you know, they were the people who had the chance to build the next big thing. Or the people in the safer yeah. projects, you know, that's not going to move the needle in the long run. So I think that with Google, I like what they're doing. Uh, you know, saying if you don't like perks, that's, that's you know, it's your problem. Maybe get out. Um, it's a matter of who you end up losing. And I think this is a thing that can really yeah. get lost when you don't read between the lines here. To that point, Alex, um, this was part of the discussion at that Google all hands that our CNBC reporter Jennifer Elias got a hold of. Um, they were asked, the management was asked about raises, equity and bonuses. Would that remain on track? And I thought this was kind of interesting. The response was it won't they won't deviate from paying workers at the top end of the market. So that leaves a lot open to your point. You know, who do they consider the top end of the market? They're most crucial to their competitive advantage. Um, to go back to what John was saying, I also like a debate. So what about one word here, the bundle? When it comes to Microsoft, are they not in a stronger position by focusing on packaging their stuff together, putting some of the incumbents out of business because they can do so? They've already got access to the enterprise, the biggest enterprise players, and they can say, hey, look, you use Teams for your video, for your messaging collaboration, um, and a whole host of other products are going into cybersecurity now. That's a strong way to play this, right? Well, Microsoft is no stranger to doubling down on its strengths and riding that to profitability for a long time. We know they did that with Windows. I think in the short term, again, you're going to see some good things. My worry about is, is the long term. Think about what just happened to Adobe, right? But that Adobe is, is the, the market term. leader. They're getting market Adobe, share from doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it can look that way in the near term. But the long term, you can end up having issues. Again, I'm going to point to the Adobe example. You know, they, they were the only one in the game. And then out of nowhere, right, how quickly did Figma come up? Because they weren't reinventing quick enough. And now they had to make this deal that ended up hurting the stock um, because it was defensive and they needed to do it. So wow. I think that with these companies, it can look good in the near term. And underst can, I understand they can take market share. There's a way to capitalize okay. on these moments. But, it's a question but whether they do it or not. And Adobe could be seen very differently as a Microsoft. That move for Figma is seen as largely defensive. But you look at what Microsoft is doing in gaming. This is pretty offensive, right? I mean, who knows if this deal will actually go through the Activision Blizzard. But that's certainly operating from a position of strength and trying to get ahead of incumbents. I think that the, the key strategy here is in a recession you invest. And it's a question of what you're going to end up investing in. So I think you're right. And, and here, I'll agree with you on this point, right? If these companies make the right investments right now, it's going to put them in much better position in the long term. The question is, what do you invest in? And when you cut, are you cutting the things that are going to end up hurting you in the future? So I don't see a large scale you know, end of the game for big tech, but I do think they're more vulnerable to outside challenges than they were before. And there's no way around that. Great look at those challenges. Alex, thank you. Alex Kantrowitz. One company not cutting costs this morning is Robinhood, announcing a new program called Robinhood Gold that would allow users to earn 3% on their uninvested brokerage cash. That's a big premium to offer given so many cost cuts across the tech landscape and growth stocks across the board struggling with higher rates. Vlad Tenoff was with us this morning on Squawk on the Street to talk about the move and why he sees it as an opportunity. Take a listen. One of the things that we, we do see as an opportunity with rolling out uh, this new 3% interest rate on gold is that, I mean, as you mentioned, it's it's a very high rate. Uh, it's one that 
I don't know if I've seen anyone offering that at, at this point. Um, and I think it's just economically rational for them to put their their money in Robinhood, their cash in Robinhood, even if uh, you know, even while they're not investing. Robinhood clearly hoping it might attract some new users who don't even trade stocks. And given shares down 80% over the last year, going to be a while to recovery. Interesting, Didi, hear him talk about, you know, not so much about being in and out of names, tra trading and being active as a trader, but more about parking money and waiting and collecting interest in the meantime. And, you know, a 3% yield is higher than anywhere that I've seen, even some of the challenger banks. But the point is, for fintechs, right, and Robinhood is in this market share game. It's still trying to collect the number of users on its platform so that it can cross-sell. So this is likely a product that is going to lose money. However, you put it next to the traditional banks, John, it's quite amazing. 3% versus, you know, a 0.01% APY on your Chase savings account. That's the point here, right? They're trying to show consumers that there's a better way and it's still safe because this is all FDIC insured in this case, this time for Robinhood. Um, <laughs> and that, that difference is, is stark. Well, to some degree, it might be safe for consumers. A question for investors is, is it safe for Robinhood? Same time, Wealthfront right now is paying 2% uh, API. Um, you know, I happen to know that. But, you know, it's interesting. You got, on the one end, with Robinhood, you got payment for order flow, right, where they're getting paid. But then you got them paying customers for not ordering. Uh, th there could be a pinch there, yeah. <laughs> right, uh, Carl, if, uh, if the market slows down and retail investors take a step back and just sort of park their money there, uh, you know, Robinhood not getting paid on the one side and then having to pay out on the other? Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. And it does make you wonder, D, whether or not if you're looking for recovery in some of their uh, metrics, maybe it's not going to be, you know, volumes on equities or crypto or options that recover first, yeah. but maybe MAUs. That would be interesting. I mean, if you're an investor in this stock um, and a product like this comes out, you're not thinking that the company is necessarily focused on profitability, but who's investing in Robinhood for that, John? I mean, you're investing because you think that it's going to be a growth company sometime in the future. It's not a one-year, a two-year gamble here. I think you're looking five, ten years out. And that's our argument in a product that maybe loses money is that they're going to collect those users and eventually monetize them. Um, as you rightly say, though, that is a difficult game to play. We've seen other uh, larger, more established fintechs have trouble doing that. Well, at 3%, the user's monetizing Robinhood. So yeah. we'll see how that works out. Uh, NASDAQ, meanwhile, if trends continue, about to close out its fifth negative week in six as the pain continues. More on what you need to know to handle the volatility after the break. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? 
generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Get a gut check on Qualcomm. Shares down, let's see, about two and a half percent today, a little more than that, despite announcements from the company's Automotive Investor Day, where we uh, brought you some previews yesterday, where the company announced an expansion in the total addressable market by about $10 billion with some of those auto moves, uh, $30 billion now in the auto business pipeline. Also, uh, a- announcing a new partnership to power Mercedes vehicles starting next year. You remember Mercedes was working with NVIDIA, so that's an interesting sort of win. Uh, Qualcomm sees the auto sector becoming a $100 billion market for the company by 2030. But along with the rest of the semiconductor stocks, uh, Qualcomm continuing to get punished a bit, down 34% so far this year, Carl. Uh, Yeah, definitely made some news there yesterday with you, John. Uh, Meantime, turning back to Treasury volatility, our next guest says dollar strength, higher rates. A two-pronged challenge, obviously, for technology here at the NYC to discuss. We're grateful to have Crisis Capital CIO Jack Athlin. Jack, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks, Carl. So the fever, the fever on the dollar and the fever on rates, you're waiting for one of them to give. It's, uh, you know, it's just this momentum trade. You just cannot get in the way right now. And... uh, you know, I'm gonna. I, I suspect that the that the yield is gonna break first because everyone's worried about recession and growth slowdown. Uh, you know, we're we're what uh, 377 or some some uh, high, much higher than I would have expected. We have a model that looks at uh, where the 10-year Treasury yield should be. It's a copper growth, a uh, copper gold. I'm sorry, relationship. It led. It led rates on the way up, and now it's suggesting the 10-year Treasury should be 2.2. <laughs> so I don't know if it's going to get there anytime soon. So why, what, what, what's being masked? Sure. So what, what's going on is copper is actually, you know, and gold's not doing that great, but copper is just getting absolutely tattooed. So if, it, if you look at a global uh, pro-cyclical uh, barometer, it's copper. And gold, you'd argue, is, is uh, you know, uh, uh, safe and, and uh, uh, sort of a safe haven uh, commodity. When you look at the relationship, what happened is going into this uh, year, uh, we had uh, the, the copper gold model telling us we should be at around three and a quarter. Uh, it since turned, and this is now the first time that uh, copper gold is below the 10-year Treasury yield in probably two years. Hey, Jack, it's Deirdre. Good morning. Um, what do you recommend for the average investor who, you know, obviously isn't a professional? We've had other managers on here saying that they recommend cash, even though, you know, with the rate of inflation. What do you think? What's your position in cash? I don't. Could I don't, you hear? I didn't, I didn't hear. I'm uh, sorry. I, I didn't think she hear. was asking about your cash position. What's responsible right now? Sure. So uh, right now we have 20 uh, percent of our growth portfolio on the sidelines. Uh, half in what we call non-correlated, 
the other half in gold. Um, and uh, the gold trade, I was disappointed with it last year, um, with, with inflation up and, and interest rates nowhere. Uh, I would have expected gold to rally about 30%. It was down 4%. Now I understand why gold is down with real rates rising. Uh, but once the dollar cracks, uh, I expect we will start to redeploy some of that gold uh, back into foreign markets. So we like, uh, we're starting to watch Japan in particular uh, for uh, cheap market uh, and a remarkably cheap currency right now. Hey, Jack, it's John Ford. Good to see you. Great to have you here on Tech Jack. Uh, it you may, like you may not be hearing guests. Yeah, yeah. sounds I'm, like I'll, he's not I'll hearing. Pick it up, I'll pick it up here at Go the desk, uh, John. So if you're going to get in line for yields to give, where do you go? And how long should you be expected to wait in technology? Sure. So in tech, um, like I said, this is a, a one-two punch on tech. Um, strong dollar doesn't help tech. High uh, tenure treasury yields don't help tech. Uh, and so for right now, um, where I'm looking at is the kind of the lowest duration tech at the moment with the, those with the highest forward earnings yields, and that's semis and that's uh, biotech, largely because they've already gotten hammered. Um, so perhaps there's a little, little less downside in those sectors. Right. Do you think that there's, I mean, a big part of the, some of the chatter on the tape today was about China and uh, Taiwan and national security and reshoring and, I mean, is, is there going to be geopolitical risk on the other side of that trade once semis find some buyers? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there, there, there could be some geopolitical risk. Obviously, everyone's trying to reshore right now, uh, national security and all that, and that does tend to be inflationary. Uh, and so what we're looking at, not only are we putting together a plan for the next, you know, 10 months, uh, but we're actually reconfiguring a portfolio for the next 10 years, recognizing that we've pretty much wrung out everything we're going to do in, in uh, globalization and recognize that a lot of uh, manufacturing, a lot of uh, sourcing is going to come back onshore. That is going to be incrementally inflationary. And then, of course, we've got demographics uh, that will tend to keep prices low. And now we're trying to figure out where's that balance. It's going to be crazy. It is. The it's next five to ten years. Bottom line is the next five to ten years is not going to look at all like the last five to ten years. <laughs> I can, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident with that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. Jack, some good uh, germs of ideas there. That's great to have great. you in. Thanks, Appreciate Carl. that. Apologize for the audio trouble. No problem. Jack, <laughs> now I think I can hear. <laughs> John? Yeah, it, it's interesting, Carl. wanted to ask this to Jack. but just want to put this out there, something I've been thinking about. When it comes to U.S. tech, right now as we enter a slowdown. It's unique in that when it comes to big data, when it comes to AI, when it comes to cloud, U.S. technology companies are unquestionably in the lead. You don't have this challenge from China, particularly when it comes to security, because in a way this, um, you know, I don't know whether to call it nationalism, this unwinding of globalization to, to some extent, uh, countries looking to partner with friendly countries is probably going to benefit the U.S. in some key ways strategically. And D, it, it's not as if in this environment there's a question of whether data is important, artificial intelligence is important, and the cloud trends are going to continue. They will, and arguably U.S. companies are in an unusually strong position when this cycle is over to benefit. You might have said differently. Um, a year or two ago, guys, uh, the 
thesis for Chinese tech was that huge amount of consumers that it, the field was open to. But we know how regulation has gone there. At one point, China was thought to be contending with um, the U.S. on some tech like AI. Uh, not the, really the case anymore, especially under that regulatory scrutiny. Meanwhile, guys, uh, take a look at Open Door, open door Shares. They are down 80 percent this year. Uh, but there are still some bulls on the street. We will talk to one of them, Keith Verboy, about why he still likes the business. That's next. Tech Check is back in a moment. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Checking in on things two hours into trading. The market has definitely reset in the wake of some selling in Europe today. A downgrade of gold, from Goldman Sachs on their S&P target. And just more concerns about a hard landing. S&P just south of 3,700. And the Dow, of course, has retaken uh, its June lows. We're approaching the close in Europe, which was where a lot of the weakness really accelerated today. We saw a flurry of news overnight. Our Seema Modi has more on that. Hey, Seema. The European close resurrected Carl here as we see a pretty ugly session overseas. We're at the lows of the day across Europe. That PMI data from the Eurozone falling to 48.2. That was a 20-month low. Of course, a reading below 50 does indicate contraction. The stock 600, which tracks European stocks as a whole, lowest level in nearly two years. And just for some perspective, down about 20% from its all-time high. This as investors reevaluate the impact of higher rates, persistently high inflation across Europe. Mark Hafel, CIO of UBS Globe Wealth Management, says European assets are likely to remain volatile and under pressure until we see either a ceasefire talks or signs that Europe has secured sufficient alternative energy supplies to prevent rationing. It comes as the UK unveiled extensive tax cuts this morning. This as the country braces for a recession. The finance minister there says higher taxes, reduce incentives to work and deter investments and hinder enterprise. Uh, That's putting pressure on bonds. Take a look at the UK 10-year yield uh, jumping above 3.7%, 3.8%. The German 10-year now above 2%, the first time in nine years. All while currencies, as Peter Bookbar put it, are trading like third world currencies. The euro uh, at a fresh 20-year low, the UK pound at a 37-year low. So pretty extreme moves there, D. Back to you. Seema, we used to do the European close on yes. US CNBC every day, so maybe a sign of the times that yeah. that's back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Want to get to some news from Amazon today. Smaller but very interesting here. Amazon owned Shopbop is partnering with a company called Vivrel, which does luxury fashion rental for bags and jewelry. It will allow customers to buy and rent pre-used products across Amazon and Shopbop sites. Interestingly, publicly traded competitors have not fa- fared well, as you probably know. Take a look at Rent the Runway, 
Real Real, they do clothing rental and use resale, both down 70, 80 percent year to date. So this is more on the luxury side, not a major investment from Amazon, but always interesting, guys, to watch where they are experimenting in e-commerce. Sometimes it gets shut down quietly, fairly quickly. Um, but at this moment, we talked about this at the start of the show, John, with Alex Kantorowicz, um, as an opportunity for big tech to maybe go on the offensive when some of the incumbents like Real Real and Rent the Runway are struggling in this environment. True. And also, interesting to me, Vivrel is more focused on accessories versus apparel, right? So you're not so much worried about sizes to the same degree if you're talking about bags, if you're talking about jewelry. Uh, probably that's easier to box and ship, Carl, versus uh, a dress. Though, you know, I don't tend to wear dresses, but that's what I see. When my <laughs> wife, you know, gets a dress, it's, it comes in a bigger box than a bag. They're very dress. in right now for men, though, I will tell you. They are. They are. Uh, well, of course, it comes on a week where we got those metrics out of Stitch Fix. Revenue down 16, active clients down 9, the EBIT guide, D, no good. It's interesting, you know, uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, things opening up, going back to work, going back to restaurants, going back to travel, really was not enough to offset the decline in sort of e-commerce, at least with apparel. Yeah, for sure. Uh, meanwhile, hey, are you searching for value with all this volatility? Who isn't? Well, how about merger arbitrage? More on the flurry of big tech M&A. Don't go away. We're back in two. of stories out of venture capital this week. Keith Verboy's open store, which buys Shopify businesses from entrepreneurs, reaching a $970 million valuation with a new funding round. On the other hand, though, Open Door, which Verboy also co-founded, is reportedly suffering increased losses in its home flipping business, reminiscent of Zillow's problems last year. Let's bring in Keith for a closer look. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for being with us today. I know that there are major differences in the business models and the capital structures of these two companies, but I want to respond to something that you said on Twitter. You attributed Open Door's recent pain to, quote, quick dislocation of prices, which is obviously temporary. What data are you looking at that tells you that this weakness in housing is obviously temporary? Well, the Federal Reserve has been playing around with interest rates, right, raising interest rates, you know, pretty dramatically. And that has dramatic effects on the pricing of real estate, I mean, residential real estate, what people can afford, mortgages, refinancing, home shopping. We saw this in 2008. Uh, people didn't stop buying and selling houses in the global financial crisis, but it went from 5.5 million transactions a year to four. So as you have within a quarter, within six months, rapid changes in interest rates, you're going to see rapid changes in residential real estate pricing. Open Door is going to handle this perfectly. There'll be a blip for a quarter or so, but Open Door has been making money successfully for five years in a row on a housing purchase basis. We do not flip homes, we charge a fee. Um, so, you know, some of the criticism in the public markets has been predicated on a defamatory story run by one of your competitors where they basically didn't account for any of the fees open door charges. It'd be Keith. like saying, sorry, you it'd be like saying, well, Apple loses money because they don't charge fees. It's, an, it's, it's stupid and insane. But Opendoor does lose money, Keith. It hasn't been profitable on a gap basis, no. right, for the last few years. Opendoor, Opendoor is profitable on a gap basis. If you look at last quarter, what we are you were looking at? 
for the year, we're going to be gap profitable. Almost, I mean, it's hard to tell because quarter four hasn't occurred. But it's not uh, but profitable, if, Keith. We'll show you year, the numbers. Five, we'll show you the numbers right on the screen right is, now. Lost money on a net loss basis in 2021, 2020, also the first few quarters of this me, year. What are you looking me, at? No, show me. Show me quarter two. And first of all, gap also includes non-cash expenses, as you know. But gap your, is, is net losses. No, it includes stock-based expenses, which are fake. Now, secondly, for five years in a row, literally 20 quarters, on the home basis, on a per-home basis, we have made money. So obviously, there's operating expense and there's scale in a business. We hire a lot of engineers. We run a lot of product innovation. Like any company, virtually every company that's gone public in the last five years mm-hmm. in tech, has similar characteristics. But fundamentally, all you have to do is look at an operating basis. Open Door has been profitable for 20 quarters in okay, a row. But- I have to clarify, that's a non-GAAP basis under generally accepted accounting principles, Keith, taking no, net margin, losses. No, absolutely not. That's like stupid. Gross okay, margin, we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Gross, Maybe an accountant can, can talk to us. Contribution margin. Do you not know what gross margin and contribution margin are? Those are GAAP accepted terms. Open Door has been profitable on a GAAP basis on a contribution margin, gross margin basis for 20 quarters in a row. Okay, we'll get we'll maybe we'll get an accountant to weigh in here, Keith, but I want to move on a little bit. Part of the open door model is stress testing for different scenarios and downturns. This is sort of what you were alluding to. Yeah. How much of a downturn in home prices does the model take into account? What did you stress test? Did you stress test a six and a half percent mortgage rate, given that all the forecasts uh, were for mid five percent this year? Uh, so we stress tested against the worst housing crisis in American history, which was the global financial crisis of 2008. Uh, it's hard to go back too far beyond 1950 because the data sets are kind of mixed. But we basically stress tested against anything and back tested against anything that's ever been experienced in American history. Uh, so interest rates are complicated. There's uh, several things that have impact. I think you can get a certain amount for free, meaning you can move interest rates a decent amount. It doesn't affect consumer behavior. And then after that, it absolutely does. So, you know, without talking about the specificity of the model, the fortunate situation is I think we're going to see a more stable interest rate environment going forward. It's hard to predict because I think we still have persistent inflation. As you know, I'm the only person in the world who publicly precisely called the top of the market. And that is still likely to be true that we have more inflation and the interest rates may have to go up, but they're starting to stabilize and be more predictable, which will allow Americans to buy homes, sell homes, and open door to be profitable. Hey, Keith, uh, good to have you. Uh, Here's my big concern and question when it comes to open door. Maybe you can address it is what happens when you've got rising rates that are making the the cost of uh, paying a mortgage so much higher for prospective buyers and you've got uh, an, an aggregator in Open Door that's purchasing a lot of homes and risks holding a lot of homes in inventory that then aren't moving as quickly. How in the model do you adjust for that? Well, as you know, the goal of Open Door is to hold the homes as, as a short period of time as possible. Like days on days in holding is a critical variable, just like any other inventory-based business. So the issue is if within that hold period you have a massive change in pricing. For the homes we're buying now, I would expect that we would be very accurate on. It's only within the window if you have a massive interest rate change and it changes pricing that you have exposure. 
going forward, I'm pretty confident in what Open Door is doing and the pricing we're doing. It's just when you have a really fast change, anything that's already in inventory. So the goal for the company is to reduce inventory over time constantly. There's even transactions we engage in as a pilot where we don't hold inventory for more than hours. Over time, you keep compressing your inventory hold so the model gets better and better every day. Yeah, I just I wonder about that. I, I continue to watch, for example, uh, homes for sale in Silicon Valley, and they used to go within two weeks, and now more and more are sitting on the market for a couple months at least, uh, even as prices are coming down. But I also want to ask you about Open Store, uh, also yeah. a, a play on expertise and holding a lot of properties in a portfolio. As we head into a challenging Q4, where I've got a lot of questions about inventory, and uh, again, a different kind of inventory, retailers holding inventory where um, where consumer demand is slowing down. Do you have any particular insight that you're able to share with those retailers to help them navigate that? So what OpenStore does is we provide instant liquidity Shopify merchants, long-tail Shopify merchants who start their business and don't want to run it forever. We buy them out and run the businesses, collect them coherently into one global horizontal e-commerce store. Obviously, we have to do demand forecasting. We have inventory. Uh, we need to predict in fourth quarter, like what are people going to buy? What are consumers going to buy? It's no different than any other e-commerce challenge, actually. We just happen to have more brands, more products, more SKUs. Uh, so it gets a little bit more complicated, but the fundamentals of retail are the fundamentals of retail. So we know what we're going to spend in marketing, and that allows us to predict demand. We do take signals into account in the macro world, but we are basically like a global retailer. Keith, one more question on Open Door. Um, you presented the opportunity that you believe there is. Are you confident enough to be buying shares at this beaten down level? I would love to buy shares. Unfortunately, the fund I work at is not a registered, or actually, fortunately and unfortunately, in this particular case, we're not a registered investment advisor, which means we can't buy public equities for more than a very small percentage of our fund, and that includes crypto and includes secondary offerings. So we're extremely restricted on buying public equities. So we buy and concentrate on buying private equities. That's why we have a securities exemption. So fundamentally, I'm not really enabled uh, buying any public market stocks. We, you, we almost never do a founder fund, actually. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. Keith Raboy, thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure. Let's get a gut check on a pair of software names. Uh, Datadog is one of them. Credit Suisse initiates at Outperform today with a 145 target, liking what they see from their hyperscaler business and push into cyber. Similar story for an under-the-radar name, New Relic, bullish on the company's transition to a product-led growth model despite seeing a, quote, large innovation gap, launching coverage at Outperform, price target of 78. Losses here. Uh, the broader market have gotten a bit worse. Dow's now down 520 and the S&P below 3690. Stock slumping today. The Dow is down by more than 550 points. But if you're looking for opportunities in this market, how about arbitrage yield amid this year's mega mergers? That is the simple spread between the announced deal price and where the stock is currently trading. For example, Broadcom's $61 billion VMware takeover Intel's $5 billion deal for Tower Semi, both offer an 18% yield opportunity. The biggest deal of the year, Microsoft's $69 billion bid for Activision, offering a whopping 26.6% yield. Microsoft has proposed buying Activision for $95 per share. It is trading well below that at $75. So an easy, perhaps 20 bucks if you want to take the risk 
that this deal will close. Of course, you got to be confident that it's going to close. Earlier this week, though, CEO Satya Nadella said that the company is, quote, very, very confident that it will. We should point out, though, that every day that stocks drop, these ARB opportunities get riskier. If this deal blows up for any reason, Activision would conceivably drop further than it would have if stocks broadly were doing well. By the way, guys, how about all the private equity buyouts waiting in the wings? According to Deutsche, bankers still have to offload more than $50 billion in risky financing commitments for tech deals, including Elliott Management's Citrix buyout and Elon Musk's Twitter deal. Guys, for that... Um, arbitrage yield opportunity. It says a lot probably about the regulatory environment, right? It's a risky trade if you think that they're not going to go through. We talk about this all the time. What is the appetite? How many deals are not being done, for example, because of Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor, the regulatory bodies? Uh, you're right. Uh, and speaking of uh, regulatory risk, it's been another tough week for crypto, D, as uh, Bitcoin looks to close out the week down about 5%. One bankrupt firm got a new way to escape the pain, though. That's an IOU. We'll get that story in just a moment. Don't go away. Session lows on the major indices, including the NASDAQ, now down a bit more than 2%. The S&P, uh, unusually down slightly more than the NASDAQ. The Dow off, not quite 2%, but that's down more than 560 points at the moment, D. And Bitcoin still below 19K. Since Celsius, the bankrupt crypto lender, froze withdrawals in June. Customers' funds have been in limbo. Now a leaked audio shared with CNBC reveals a preliminary plan to compensate them. And that same recording further highlights a lack of internal risk management. Kate Rooney joins us with more. Kate. That's right, D. According to a leaked audio of an internal meeting at Celsius, the now bankrupt company wants to issue an IOU cryptocurrency to customers that signed up for some of its accounts. We spoke to some former employees that verified that the recording was legitimate. The audio is from an internal meeting on September 1st, so the plans may have changed in the weeks since. And we were not able to verify that this was the entire exchange. On the call, though, Celsius's chief technology officer says this idea isn't fully baked. The plan right now is early stages, basically high level. Uh, the, I would say it's at the concept stage. Later in that recording, Celsius's co-founder, Newt Goldstein, outlines the plan for customers who deposited funds into its EARN accounts. Those were the ones that promised yields as high as 17 percent. He says the new IOU tokens will represent the ratio between what Celsius owes customers and then the assets Celsius right now has available. It also says that customers will benefit if they want to, if they, excuse me, wait to redeem those tokens. So the more you wait, there's a better chance that the gap will be closed. However, you can always redeem. He also argues that Celsius has revenue coming in from their other businesses, mining, for example, and that cryptocurrencies will become more liquid at some point. He goes on to say that the tokens can be redeemed with Celsius for a haircut or on other crypto platforms like Uniswap. This reimbursement plan, guys, is not the only thing in the works at Celsius. In another portion of a recording shared exclusively with CNBC, Celsius's chief technology officer says that the company is also building a transaction management system to keep track of the company's assets. Sources familiar with the company's operations say this data had been tracking billions of dollars manually. They were using a simple Excel spreadsheet, of course, leaving a lot of room for error there. We reached out to Celsius for comment but haven't heard back yet. Back to you. 
Uh, Kate, thanks so much for that, Kate Rooney. A uh, quick programming note as we go to break. Only one more weekend between you and CNBC's Delivering Alpha. You can scan the QR code on your screen to register now. It returns in person on Wednesday, and you don't want to miss it. You can hear from the world's top investors about how they're handling this volatility. And speaking of volatility, pretty much 2% losses across the board as any relief from Europe's close has not happened yet. Tech Check is back in a moment. On our latest installment of Binge, we spoke with She-Hulk's showrunner and executive producer, Jessica Gao. We talked about bringing the Marvel comic to life and how Disney is moving away from the Binge model. You're on a, a talk show, essentially, called Binge, and we named it Binge a few years ago because at the time, it really was uh, the advent of streaming and original content, and you would binge a bunch of shows. But lately, it seems like the streamers have figured out that, that weekly episodic drops make more sense. When binging was kind of in this, its heyday, I loved it just because, you know, I, can't, I don't have any self-control when it comes to TV. I'll stay up and watch 18 hours of TV. But on the creator side, uh, I, do, I do love going to week to week because it's so nice to have like the, the feeling of a water cooler conversation happening again. People have time to digest the episode, talk about their theories. It just becomes part of the fabric of your social life. For something like Marvel where, you know, every little detail is scrutinized and there's so much speculation. And, and also for me, the most rewarding thing is seeing what memes come out of each episode. <laughs> that is the ultimate compliment, isn't it? Which GIF is gonna go universal? <laughs> totally. For the full uncut conversation, you can join us on Twitter or YouTube. Right after this program, you can watch the full clip at CNBC.com backslash binge and tune in for a special live stream of the full interview today at 1 p.m. Eastern time. John, you know, she was a Marvel fangirl who had pitched them several projects and got denied, finally got her dream working uh, for the company. It takes you right back to what Disney's doing in streaming, although below 100 today for the first time since July is going to tell you a lot about the tape. Yeah, and in my house, we are watching She-Hulk. Uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, including Madison with a Y, but not where you think. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the talking to the camera. It's such an interesting time, Carl, as you mentioned, in streaming as the model is shifting uh, away from what it was initially when Netflix was defining it. Uh, also, guys, as we close out here, I want to turn back to the market, the NASDAQ now down more than 2%. And as we're looking at the week, I, I'm seeing the Airbnb down yeah. 15%. GitLab, Coinbase, Bill.com down more than mm -hmm. that. It's been a rough week for the growers. I noticed that earlier, Airbnb at the top of that list of top NASDAQ 100 laggers over the last week. And you know, it's interesting because the conversations, guys, that we've been having over the last week with some of the consumer names like the DoorDash CEO, the Uber CEO, Chesky himself of Airbnb, is that the consumer remains very resilient for now. So how does that all factor into the pain that, you know, the Fed maybe wants to see from the economy? Um, when does that shoe drop if it does? Uh, Carl, be an interesting week ahead, but we are within striking distance still, getting closer and closer to that June low on the NASDAQ. Yeah, pretty fascinating on the S&P. Uh, that's interesting. And then, of course, currencies have been such a big part of the story today. Uh, pound dollar 109 now. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Let's get to the judge who's in the house. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.